Parsha Truma. Right? This, uh, this parsha is dedicated in memory of Chizkiyahu Moshe Yaakov ben Shlomo, who is the brother of a close friend of ours, Doraita, uh, who has been a close friend of us since Israelite. Um, and she has tremendous merit because she does unbelievable things for Chaylei Tzal. So uh, really a uh, shout out to her. Um, and it should be in the Louis for his neshama. Okay? Uh, so, and I, I want to remind everybody that we should keep in mind that the hostages should come home soon, and particularly Daniel ben Shimon, who's Rav Perez's son. So, a number of years ago, a woman came to speak to us on Yom HaShoah. Her name, uh, she has since passed away, her name was Marta Weiss. Okay? She was uh, born in Bratislava, which was then Czechoslovakia. Um, <laughs> And she basically hid in plain sight. She looked very Aryan, whatever that means. Um, she had an older sister. Um, even though they were, you know, they were sisters and one was older and one was younger, they looked almost identical. Um, so that later on, that would unfortunately create certain challenges for her. Um, she um, eventually was looped up with the rest of Czechoslovakian and Hungarian jury in 1944, she was sent to Hungary because it was considered safer, and she was with her family, and her story is an amazing story. I think a book was written about her story. And she ended up in Auschwitz. Okay? She was on a cattle car, stuffed with 120 people uh, for the better part of three days. Um, if you look at the map, the journey from where she was in Hungary to Auschwitz is no more than a day. It's 10 hours, right? But the, 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 the pressure of how many Jews were being shipped into Auschwitz, Auschwitz couldn't handle them. So they tracked them around for three days and kept them in the cattle cars until the Nazis, the Germans, were ready to receive them. Three days in a cattle car with no food, no water, a bucket that's overflowing, pure misery. It was so terrible that there was a sense of relief when they got to Auschwitz because they were getting out of the cattle car, but they didn't understand where they landed. She was very quickly given a number, right? It was branded on her arm, A270002. You can look up what that means, what the letter A means. She describes a number of things that stuck with me. One of them was her memory of the open sewage that was flowing in the ditches as she walked into Auschwitz, right? She described at one point in her story that in 1944, this is documented, by the way, I looked it up afterwards, there was a visit to Auschwitz by the Red Cross. Now, because she and her older sister looked exactly alike, even though they weren't twins, she was taken to Mengele's unit. Some of you may know that Mengele uh, was a doctor. He had the audacity to call himself a doctor. He literally wore a smock and a stethoscope. He was responsible. He was known in Auschwitz as the Malach the angel of death. Um, there is a famous picture of him, which we will see in Yad Vashem, and you will see on the platform. It's a big placard. Um, he is sort of selecting. You know, people stood on line, and he would point to the right or the left. And, of course, the Jews didn't fully understand what that meant, but you didn't have to be a genius. You were coming from the ghetto, and all the healthy, younger people went one way, and all the old and the children went the other way. You knew which line you had to get on. She was selected and taken to Mengele's uh, medical center where they did terrible experiments on twins. They injected her with something that was incredibly painful. Um, after the war, all of the records of Mengele were either stolen or disappeared. 
So she never knew what she was injected with. And for the rest of her life, whenever she had a medical ailment, she, there was no way she could know if it was related to whatever she'd been injected with. Can you imagine living with that kind of uncertainty, right? She describes a visit by the Red Cross, and the Red Cross came to the medical center. And of course, the Nazis were putting on a show. And, you know, Mengele was there. And, you know, wanted to say, like, look, we treat our patients and we take care of them and their hospital beds and everything's fine, right? And finally, there was a girl there, a courageous girl, who couldn't bear it. And she screamed out loud in front of the Red Cross representatives, they're murdering us, don't believe them. And Mengele kind of made light of it and said, you know, she's not well, she's off balance, whatever, she's, she's an ill patient, etc., right? And um, when the Red Cross left, he poured petroleum down her throat and set her on fire from the inside, killing her. Those are the people that, that, that she lived through. And one of the stories that really stuck with me was, she understood German because of her background, because Bratislava, they spoke German. They were Volksdeutsch. And she was at one point walking to her work detail, or walking back from her work detail, and she was listening to two German guards. They didn't know she spoke German. And the two guards were, were making a bet. They were walking on top. You'll see this when you go to Poland. They were walking over sort of a, uh, an area of ditches. And the sewers ran in the ditches on either side of this path and underneath it. Okay? And one of them was betting whether if they knocked her into the sewage, she would survive. So they made a bet. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, he slammed her in the head with his rifle butt. And she went flying into the ditch. Now, she is an Auschwitz survivor. She's, an, she's a prisoner in Auschwitz. The life expectancy for a prisoner of Auschwitz was two weeks to three months, depending on your year and your age. Right? It, 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 just, to, just so you understand, when she was liberated, she weighed 17 kilos, which was 37 pounds. Okay? That, that we just can't even imagine that. So she's thrown into this ditch, and she's in the muck. And there was a boy who was coming in the other direction, also from a work detail, and he jumped in and helped her out. She never found out who that boy was. She never understood why he risked his life to do that and whether he survived having done that. But he absolutely saved her life. And that story stuck with me. And at the end of her story, so she opened up the floor to boys' questions. So one of the boys asked her, how did you survive? Like, what kept you going? She gave an unbelievable answer. She said that when she got to Auschwitz, she was a little over 10 years old. Think about a 10-year-old who's been in the ghetto, been in hiding, whatever, who looks old enough to be selected to work. She was 10 years old. So she didn't know much. She didn't really have a Jewish education. I mean, that was 1944. The Holocaust really started in earnest in 1939. Czechoslovakia was taken over by the Nazis in 1938. So she's been under the heel of the Nazis, more or less, right? From 1938 to 1940, that's six years. Since she was four years old, she had no Jewish education. But she remembered one tefillah. She remembered the nigun of Avinu Malkeinu. Avinu Malkeinu. And she knew what it meant. And whenever she was having a hard time, she said deep inside of her, she would sing in her head the Avinu Malkeinu. That Avinu, that our father, Malkeinu, our melech, that you're there, protect me. And somehow she felt that that got her through. Now she said, if she had sung this out loud and they had heard her, they probably would have killed her. She had to hide this. She kept it inside. That was what kept her going through. The things 
that we can show, that we can reveal, and the things we hide. Now, why do I tell you this story? This week is Parsha Chuma. Okay? Very strange topic. You know, we, we, Avram and Yitzchak and Yaakov and the Avos and Yitzrayim and, and Harsinai and Mishpatim, we're getting the laws, and all of a sudden, out of the blue, we got to build this tent, a tabernacle, right? And, and this is going to travel us wherever we go. And there's a famous Machlokast in Rashi and the Ramban, and other Rishonim get into this, the Sparna, the Ibn Ezra. Where does this come from? So Rashi says, really, the Parshiot here are not in order, and why this is placed here is an interesting discussion, but really, we would never have been given a Mishkan if it wasn't for Chet And there is a logic to that opinion. Like, what was actually supposed to happen? The Jews were up on Har Sinai. <coughs> Moshe Rabbeinu was up on Har Sinai. He gets down on the 40th day. There's no Chet They get the Luchos. It's unbelievable. They start learning Torah. Moshe says, we're not going to spend time here. But why would we make a base medrash in, in Brooklyn? No, no, no. We're going to Eretz how long would it have taken them, by the way, to get there at Saul? By the way, what day, what day is it when Moshe Rabbeinu gets down? No, come on. No. When were the luchos broken? What day? No? That's when we got the second luchos. Shiva Sabatamus. Zayin Besivan, Vav Zayin, whatever, that's when we got the Torah. That's the beginning. Forty days later is Yud Zayin Betamus. And this is a difficult day, and one of the difficult things, the first majorly difficult thing that happened on that day was that Moshe comes down and breaks the Luchot. Chet Egel happened in Yud Zayin Betamus. It's been a bad day for us ever since. But what if there hadn't been Chet Egel? Then in Yud Zayin Betamus, right, we would have spent a few days learning, that's Mishpatim, and then we would have gone to Eretz Yisrael. According to one opinion, it was a 10-day journey. When would we have gotten to Eretz Yisrael? Rosh Chodesh Av. Right now, Kshenichnas Av, anybody know how that finishes? Because Av is a difficult month. But that's not the way it was supposed to be. There's a Zohar that says, and there's an Ariya Kodesh that says, that the day will come when Av is a month of tremendous Simcha, as it was supposed to be. That's what it says. Why was it supposed to be? Because that was supposed to be when we get there to Israel. Now, if we're going there to in 10 days, we don't need a Mishkan. We don't need some portable shul. We'll get there. Right? So Rashi says, in an ideal world, you wouldn't have a Mishkan. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that there wouldn't have been a base of Mikdash. Right? There always was meant to be a base of Mikdash. How do I know that? Anybody? How do I know there's always meant to be a Mikdash? Pardon? Because there was one. Well, one second. Because there was one. But there was a Mishkan. And Rashi says there wasn't supposed to be a Mishkan. Right? Okay, so that's not Pshat. There's a Mizbeach, Yaakov offers it up at Peitel. No, give me Mikdash Hashem Konanu Yadecha. Your hands are preparing a Beis HaMikdash. Where do we say that? Or sing that? That's in Az Yashir. Right? There's an illusion the fact there's going to be a Beis HaMikdash. And there are many other illusions. So I'm not saying there wasn't supposed to be a Beis HaMikdash. Okay. But here, the Ramban says no. The Ramban says there was always supposed to be a Mishkan, which makes a lot more sense, by the way. And what is the Mishkan meant to do somehow? It's meant to, I don't know, what's it meant to do? Why do I need a, a Mishkan? And inside the Mishkan, okay, we have the OL, and inside is that of the Kodesh, and then the Kodesh, or opposite the Kodesh, is the new, holiest place in the world, Kodesh Kodesh Kodesh. Kodesh. 
Is the Kodesh Kodesh the holiest place in the world? No. No. What's holier than the Kodesh Kodesh? Come on, seriously. It's true. What's holier than the Kodesh Kodesh? Well, let's put it this way. Let's put it this way. Whatever's holy, that's where you face, right? If you're in America, you dive towards Israel. If you're in Israel, you dive towards Yerushalayim. Yerushalayim is a little holier than the rest of Israel, right? If you're in Yerushalayim, where do you face? The old city. Okay. If you're in the old city, where do you face? Harabai. If you're in Harabai, where do you face? Makom Mikdash. If you're in the Mikdash, in the Hechel, where do you face? Kodesh Kadashim. If you're in the Kodesh Kadashim, what do you face? The Aron. Right? The Aron is holy. And what's the holiest part of the Aron? What's inside of the Aron? What is inside of the Aron? The Luchot Abrit. How many Luchot? Nope. Two and a lot of broken pieces of the other two. That's a Gemara, right? It's an interesting question. Why do we save the broken Luchot? But we're not going to go there now. So the Luchot represent Torah, right? But here's an interesting question for you. So Moshe brings down these Luchot. These are like supposed to represent the receiving of Torah. What do we do with the Luchot? We put them in the Aram. And we close the Aram. So Machlokas Rishonim exactly sort of how the Aram is built and what's inside of it. Ibn Ezra says that there's a gold box and there's a gold cover, right? And inside the external box of gold is an internal box of gold. And then there's a wooden box in the middle. And the cover covers the wood so that the wood is completely surrounded by gold. And that's a whole interesting discussion. Other Rishonim say, no, there's just gold. Okay. So, presumably, I take these luchot and I put them inside this gold box. And when do I see them again? Never. Never. Maybe the plishtim saw them. The coin guttle doesn't get to open up the yarn. Now, maybe yet a coin guttle is like, I gotta check this out. Okay, could be. But, halakhically speaking, you don't open up the yarn. Why would you have something that's so important and then hide it forever? What's the point of that hiddenness? Right? By the way, it's really interesting. What are the Luchot symbol? They symbol the moment that Hashem revealed Himself to the Jewish people and maybe to the world. So the symbol of revelation, of being revealed, that I actually see sound, is hidden. What's that about? Now let me ask you a question. Name me two other mitzvot where the most important aspect is hidden that you never see. Tefillin. I take these parchments. I mean, okay, if you have to fix them, but once they're in there, I'm not supposed to see them. Right? And what's the other one? Mezuzah. And isn't it interesting that the mezuzah and the tefillin have two things in common? What do they have in common? Scrolls. Well, okay, what scrolls? The first and second parashat of Shema. So the Shema, which is somehow related to the Torah, is hidden. Not supposed to see it. Okay? If you took the parchments of tefillin, and you hung them in between your eyes, you wouldn't be wearing tefillin. You have to... So what's... Why do we hide the Torah? By the way, think about this, right? Think about this. Here we are, we're sitting in the base manish. And arguably speaking, what is the holiest thing that's in this base manish? Sifrei Torah. But we hide them. We put them in an aron. Right? If you walked in here, if I walked in here on Sunday morning, and everybody's sitting and learning, and somebody left the Aaron doors open. I'd be like, what's going on? And I'd say, everybody up! And I'd go over and I'd close them. And if you didn't know any better, you'd look at me like I was in my mind. I'd say, what do you mean? 
That's the Torah. We want to be aware of the Torah. We should look at the Torah all the time. No, not us. We hide it away in our. So what is this? Is this hiddenness? By the way, not only can't you see it, you're not even supposed to touch it. This is a crazy story, which we alluded to once in a year, but it's worth mentioning. It's a crazy story. Um, this is in Shmuel Bet, okay, Perak Vav. Some of you will remember the story. Um, the Jews go out to fight against the Plishtim. Things are not good in Denmark. You know, when you go to war, victory, say, says the Torah, say the Nevi'im, says Tanakh, it's not about whether you're making the strategic moves. It's not about how many soldiers you are. Gideon, Gidon, Hanavi, Hashafet. Hashem keeps telling him to send more people home. He destroys the entire Philistine army with 300 men. Right? Which, by the way, not accidentally is the same number of men as who takes to war? Avram Avin. But that's for another time. Okay? Um, it's not about the strategy. What guarantees you success? Yeah, it's who are you? It's what are you doing? Now, I, I'm always very hesitant to sort of cast aspersions or say this is why this happens. But I do think it's healthy to say X happens, Y happens, could they be connected? We need to think about this. I, I, you would be hard-pressed to find a time where, the, you know, if, if, let's say a kid is cursing. He's standing out in public and he's cursing. Okay? And he doesn't even know he's Jewish. And he's standing on a street in New York City. Okay, it's not nice. Well, let's say the kid is Jewish and he's standing on a street in New York City. That's really not good. Let's say he's wearing kippah. That's much more severe. Let's say he's in Israel. Much more. Let's say he's in yeshiva. Let's say he's sitting in front of a luchensin. In other words, the higher the level of where you're at, the greater the consequence if you mess up. It's actually, you know, part of the concept of exile is... If we're making tremendous mistakes, if we're, you know, sinas chinam, blind hatred, or, or the first base of Mikdash, murder and idolatry, it's actually not good for us to be here doing those things because the consequence of doing those things here is terrible. Shem says, I'm taking you out of our soul because if you're here, I'm going to have to destroy you. Right? That's a, a broad concept. Okay? So when the Jewish people are in Eretz Israel, they automatically... Hashem expects a higher level of us. We're, we're responsible to a higher level. And when we mess it up, it's much worse. So in the last 2,000 years, you would be hard-pressed to come up with an example where the Jewish people were more divided in the land of Israel than the last year. And while I don't claim to understand what Hashem does, and I don't think now is the time to, to sort of do this kind of thinking... But I don't consider it accidental that after a period of time when the Jews were at each other's throats more than at any other time in recent memory, we suffered such a tremendous tragedy as October 7th. That's been a pattern in history. And there are various Nivuot that talk about this and say this is not accidental. That doesn't mean that we should sit here and say we know why God did what he did. We don't. But it does mean we need to do some cheshbon nefesh. We need to think how can we become more unified. Okay. Right? So similarly... The Jewish people in the period, uh, at the end of the period of the Shoftim, were in a very bad state. The Mishkan was destroyed in Shiloh because the Jewish people were, were not living up to who they're meant to be. Right? Uh, the leaders of the Jewish people, who were the leaders of the Jewish people at that time? Before Shmuel Anavi? Three people. Three people are mentioned in the, in the Tanakh. Maybe a fourth. Eli, Kohen Gadol, and who else? 
his children, Chafni and Pinchas. And Chafni and Pinchas are described as corrupt. Eli was a, we're not going to cast versions on Eli Anavi, but, but, but Eli was not living up to his potential. And so things go very wrong very fast. Elkanah, who ended up being the father of Shmuel Anavi, is attempting to bring the people back to Judaism, to Shiloh, and there are all sorts of discussions in Chazal as to how he does that. And then along comes Shmuel Anavi, and Shmuel Anavi wants to turn things around. And during this period of time, when the Jewish people are in a bad way, they go to war against the Plishtim because they have no choice, and they lose. And they're decimated. And tens of thousands of Jews are murdered by the Philistines. Sound familiar? So the Jewish people say, you know, this is terrible. So somebody comes up with the idea, let's take the Aron out to battle. Now there's precedent for this. The Aron was taken out. Pinchas, for example, takes the Aron out when they go to fight Og, when they go to fight Sichon, whatever. But you have to be worthy. The Aron isn't a magic cure-all. You don't take the Aron Kodesh out if you're, if you're pigs, if you're animals, if you're, if you're terrible to each other, and expect that the Aron's going to work. You have to be at a certain level. They are not worthy. So not only do they lose the battle, not only are many more Jews killed, but they lose the Aron. So the Jewish people now... If you look at the entire period of Shmuel and Shoftim, Shoftim and Shmuel, this is the nadir of the Jewish people. They've lost the arm, the Mishkan is destroyed, they have no Navi, they have no Melech, and the people are full of transgression. And then something happens, and it starts to turn around. Elkanah is bringing people back to Tshuva, uh, there's plagues in the Philistines, Hashem sends the arm back. And in that moment, right, you got to imagine that you're a Jew and you're working your field and you're on the border, okay? And if you look at a map of Israel, interestingly enough, where does your enemy reside? Where is the place which is the most dangerous for a Jew? Aza. Okay, there were four cities there. Okay, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Aza, and Gat. Goliath came from Gat. And that's where all this is going on. And there's a plague, and there's rats, and there's mice, and whatever else is going on there, which again, you know, if you talk to any Israeli soldiers been in Aza, that was the hardest part for me of being in Aza, was the rats. Like, but we're not going to go there right now. And, and all of a sudden, like, without telling the whole story, they put the Aron on a wagon to see whether, like, why these plagues are happening. They try to stack the odds against what they kind of intuit is going to happen, by placing calves in front of their mothers in the wrong direction, and the cows still go back to Eretz Israel. Now you're a farmer, and you see something in the distance, and there's people watching it, Philistines, you get a little nervous. Then you realize it's a wagon, and it's just going on its own, and there's something bright gleaming in the sun. And you realize it's the Aaron Carter's coming back, so word spreads, and people come from all over, and there's this tremendous celebration and I'm leaving out all the details of everywhere it went. There was trouble. The Jews weren't worthy. Let's put that aside. So now listen to this story. Right? So, V'david v'chol beit Yisrael m'sachakim Hashem. They're dancing. They're singing. They're going crazy. It's unbelievable. It's a big Kalbach concert. V'chol atzei broshim. U'bekinorot. U'bin valim. They've got the, the, the jam and it's an unbelievable. Right? Okay? V'yavohu ad goren nechon. And they come to a particular place. So Uzzah, right, grabs the Aron. Why does he grab it? 
because the oxen have strayed off the path. Right? Now, what is this moment? It's a wagon. It's going on this trail. And the, 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 the oxen falter. And the way that we first explained this, the wagon is about to tip over. And the urn's going to fall off. So it's like a wide world of sports moment. Right? There must have been a moment like this in the football. Who's, who's the, big, uh, the big star on the, what's it, the Kansas City Chiefs? Kelsey. Big receiver. Kelsey. Okay, Kelsey, right? What's his name? What's his whole name? Travis Kelsey. Okay, right? Okay? You see an over and all of them, you pash Ah, you know Travis Kelsey, you don't know Brachos. That's the problem. Okay, fine. Okay? So Kelsey, right? Like, the ball is there, and Kelsey's running, and the ball's in, he's in the air, and he grabs the ball. It's unbelievable! The iron is falling. The oxen is straying. Uza grabbed. Right? Unbelievable. He saves the arm. No. No, no, no. That's not what happens. Right? So Shem gets very upset. Why? Because Uza grabbed the arm. He can't grab the ark. And he smites him down. Nothing like a good smite. Right? And he dies holding the arm. Now, you're David Amalekh. You witness this. This is crazy. Uzzah was doing a good thing. David Amalekh says, like, you know, HaKash Baruch throws a temper tantrum. They throw this, like, to have a tantrum all of a sudden. Like, what are you doing? He's trying to do a good thing. Okay, maybe you shouldn't have grabbed it. What's going on? And that place remained cold. So this is an obvious question. Now that I touch the arm, you can't even touch the arm. And if you touch the arm, you die. Why would touching the arm make you dead? Now, by the way, there is a question. What did Uzzah do wrong? So even though this isn't our topic, you can't not share this idea. Rav Cook has an unbelievable idea. He says, take a look at this puzzle. Why was the arm falling? He says, Ki shamtu because the oxen strayed, they were falling. Uzzah shouldn't have grabbed the arm. He should have grabbed the oxen. Now what's the difference, says Rav Cook, between the oxen and the, and the, and the ark and the arm? He says, that's our problem. The oxen are the leaders that are leading the Torah. And the Torah, the ark, is the Torah. And we see this a problem, and we think we've got to fix the Torah. The Torah doesn't need fixing. Torah doesn't need fixing. You know, people aren't coming to show. Oh, let's take down the Mechitza. You know, it's hard to get there. We'll drive on Shabbos. You know, it's, it's, it's uh, I don't know, um, it's, it's, we want to all get together. So we don't need to keep kosher. We'll eat fish out. You know, I don't know, whatever it is, right? The Torah needs fixing. It's a 2,000-year-old book. You know, maybe it's not so relevant anymore. Let's just change the way we do it. Right? Says of Cook, that's the problem. If you're trying to fix it, you don't need to fix the Torah. Right? The Torah is fine. You need to fix the oxen. You need to change how we look at things. Okay, it's an interesting idea. Why is the Torah not to be touched and why is the Torah not to be seen? Now, you've been in a writer for like four or five months and you know me already. Come on. This, this answer, if you can't come up with this idea, you haven't been in a writer. So help me out here. The Torah is hidden. You can't touch the ark. What do you think is the idea? 
Let's play the. What would an Arayta Rebbe say? Pardon? Well, what does that mean? Torah's Torah is limited. Torah is not limited. No limits to Torah. Come on. Why would you have Torah that you can't see? Why would you have Torah that you hide in the box? Come on. Really? Yeah. Let's see if making children made you wiser. Yeah. I think that maybe we're not meant to like have the Torah handed to us like clear clear as day, but it's just a merit to like try and figure it out and like work to get there. And if it's like oh. not totally revealed to you, it's like a task for us to be able to learn, interpret, and try to figure it out ourselves. Yes, your question. Yeah. The Aaron represents the, the Luchot represents the apex of the Torah, right? And the Torah sits in a holy place on the mountain. Where's Torah supposed to be? Where? Everywhere. Here. Torah is supposed to be. If you get so stuck on the Luchot, on the Aron, on the Mishkan, then you forget that the Torah is supposed to be everywhere. I'll tell you how we know this, by the way. There was a great question that was asked of Rav Cook. I think I mentioned this once in Shia. We're almost done. There's a great question that was asked of Rav Cook. Right? A fellow was uh, taking a... A business trip down into the Sinai and he, had to, he was going down to Egypt and he suddenly was going through the Sinai desert and he said, we don't know exactly where the Mishkan was but what if I'm walking over a place this is Mamasha Tshuva, right, in the Mishpat Kohen what if I'm walking in the place where the Mishkan was then I'm walking in a place where the Kodesh Kodesh and the Holy of Holies was am I allowed to go into the desert so if Cook gives an unbelievable answer he says the Mishkan was only holy when it was there that place was holy because the Mishkan was there. Once the Mishkan moved, that place wasn't holy anymore. The Mishkan represents the fact that Torah goes with you everywhere. The Mikdash represents the idea that there's a place that we have to go to. Okay. So, if the Mishkan is such a powerful idea, you might start to think that the Torah is all about the Mishkan. Don't get distracted by the Mishkan. Torah, right, is not about a place it's not in one place. It's not about arcs or luchot. Torah is inside. Torah has to be with you everywhere you are, right? Always, okay? But then the question is, okay, right? So if Torah is in us, wherever we go, then why do I need a mishkan? Why do I need a beis mikdash? Right? Right? We say vasuli mikdash. Hashem says, I want you to make. The Gemara says, dira batachtonim. I want you to make for me an abode in the lower nether sphere in, in, in the world. Why do I need a Mishkan? If the Torah goes with me everywhere, why do I need the Mishkan? Well, you need the Mishkan because every once in a while, okay? And by the way, you know who asked this question? This is a phenomenal pasuk. You know who asked this question? Who built the first base of Mikdash? Shlomo Melech. At the dedication ceremony, okay? This is in Malachim Aleph. When Shlomo Melech dedicates the first base of Mikdash, that is a unique day in history. It will never come again. The first dedication of a Beit HaMikdash in Yerushalayim. By the way, does anybody know what day, what day it was? Nope. Nope. That was the second Beit HaMikdash. It's a good guess. Yom Kippur. The Beit HaMikdash was dedicated on Yom Kippur. And you know what was amazing about that Yom Kippur? They didn't fast. They had a party. Right? The Pharisees the Pesukim and it's described again in Divrei Yom. Right? Achlu, v'shatu, v'simchu, you should have a festival. 
And there's a, there's a suggestion amongst Chazal that when we build the third base of Mikdash, it's going to be built on Yom Kippur, or is that going to fast? So you want a good motivation to daven for the base of Mikdash? No fast that year in Yom Kippur. It's party time. And everybody's going to want to come to Yerushalayim, and everybody's going to want to come to Oraita, because the party we're going to have when they build the base of Mikdash on the roof is going to be unbelievable. But all right, okay? Listen to what Shlomo Melech says. Ki ha'umnam. This is in Malachim Aleph Perak Chet, Pasuk Chav Zayin. 27th in the 8th chapter of Malachim Aleph. In Kings 1. Ki ha'umnam yoshev Elohim al-Aretz. Hine ha-shamayim u-shmei ha-shamayim lo-yechal chalucha. Af ki ha-bayit ha-zeh baniti. Does Hashem live in the world? Is there a house that can hold Hashem? How could you put the Kosh Baruch in a house? Why would Hashem want a place here? How could we limit? So the Mishkan represents the idea that wherever you go, the Torah is inside of you, right? The Beis HaMikdash is the place that I go to, to re-experience that. Shem creates a place, as I will create, after the Chet Egel, where we somehow lose touch because Hashem seems so distant, and we feel like Moshe isn't coming back, and so we become distant, we're trying to recreate that. Hashem says, if you're going to do that, let's do it together. I'm going to help you create a space where you can so feel me that you can't forget me. You will so feel the Torah, you can't forget the Torah. So you go to the Beit HaMikdash and you experience Kohanim and you offer up Korbanot. And in the Beit HaMikdash, the way it's supposed to be, the first Beit HaMikdash, you actually see miracles. You see heavenly fire. You see bread that doesn't go stale. Unbelievable miracles. And you so feel the presence of Hashem that it recharges you. But you're not supposed to stay in the base of Mikdash. You're supposed to take Torah with you wherever you go. And that's the tension of Torah. And I would add, you know, I remember, I was in the army, I remember the first Shabbos, one more second, the first Shabbat that I was, uh, wasn't the first Shabbat, I was in Lebanon, the first Shabbat I was on patrol in Lebanon. I had managed to more to stay out of it. But I was an officer now, we were in Lebanon, I remember an armored personnel carrier, they were saving gas in the tanks. And all of a sudden I realized like, that there's no Shabbos for me. And I had to write down coordinates. Right? I was being given map coordinates to get somewhere else, it was a mission, and I had to write this down. Now, intellectually I understood that, you know, you, not only can you be Michal Shabbos, but it's a mitzvah Michal Shabbos. Right? To desecrate Shabbos, because it's Bikoch Nefesh, you're protecting the borders, so you're carrying a gun, there's no Erev. You might have to fire, at least in Ishtadu Abanan, right? You're, you know, ordering a tank to go. You might even be stepping on the gas in a Jeep. All those things you're doing in Shabbos. But for some reason, actually writing down the coordinates, I had never in my life taken a pen and written on a piece of paper on Shabbos. And it suddenly hit me, I'm mamash being Michal Shabbos. And I knew intellectually it was mutter. And if there was more time, I'd tell you how I know that was mutter. A great story from Dinei Tzavah Melchamah of Raminar. But it's mutter. But it really got me. And it sent me into a little bit of spot. I started thinking about all this. And I realized what I was worried about. I wasn't worried about the halacha. I knew halachli, not only was I allowed to do it, I was worried about what it would do to my Shabbat. Would I still want Shabbos in my life as much if I'm regularly writing things down on Shabbat, talking on the radio on Shabbat, right? What would it do to my Shabbos? What would it do to my desire to have Shabbat? So what could I do? How could I fix this? So a couple weeks later, I finally got out. Where did I go? I went back to Gush for Shabbos. I went back to my little mini base of Mikdash. 
and I recharged my batteries. And I listened to a shear from Vamital, and I had a chavrusa, and I sat late at night and I learned Rambam, right? Actually, that was the first time I really started going Hilchos Malachim, and I recharged my batteries. But you're not meant to stay in Jeep. Like, that wasn't the idea of Hezder. The guys who go to Hezder Yeshivot, they don't stay there for 30 years, right? They don't, they don't learn Torah all day until they're married with grandchildren. They, they have to learn Torah, they have to be inspired, they have to experience the Mikdash, they have to take it out into the world. They live Valech But you can't forget the Mikdash. But when you're in the Mikdash, you put the Luchos in an Aram. Because that's not the point. It's not about sort of being in the presence of a Luach. It's about being inspired so that the Luach is in you. And that's the secret of Parsha Chuma. Do you understand? Now I want you to understand. On a certain level, this year, it's like you're on Harabait. I mean, think about where you are. How could you not be inspired here? I mean, it's unbelievable. You sit here at night seder and you open up the window and they're singing in the streets. If the, if the Mashiach comes, we're going to be the first ones to know it. We're going to go up on the roof one day and we're going to smell this amazing smell. You know what it's going to smell like? Mango! It's going to be the best barbecue. They're going to be offering up kabbalas. It's going to be unbelievable. All the vegetarians are going to say, oh my God, let's go eat some meat. It's going to be unbelievable. That's where we're sitting. We're sitting in a crusader hall that was built by a group of animals who slaughtered their way through Europe and believed that they were going to be a, build a kingdom that was going to last forever. They got to Israel. They slaughtered all the Jews who were here. They slaughtered all the Muslims who were here, just about. And then they built this hall that we're sitting on. And you know why they built that? So we could learn Torah. How could you not be inspired? <clears throat> but you're not meant to stay here. Now, I don't know if you're going to go from here after Shana Bed, of course. I don't know if you're going to go from here to a university, to an army unit, to a university in America. But the question is, do you take this with you? <laughs> and when you take this with you wherever you go, there's a reason we have Allah of Shalosh Rogalin. Everyone's, I hold personally, every Jew in Chutzlaretz has to get to Israel once a year. You have to come to Israel once a year. You have to recharge your batteries. You have to remind yourself what it's all about. And that's the secret of Parshat Chuma. You take it with you on the road, but you don't forget where it is, but don't get stuck on the Luchot. That's not what it's about. So we could talk about this a lot more. That's enough food for thought. Wait. Wish everybody Shabbat Shalom.